chapter 2. In the remainder of the second chapter, in verses 6 through 9, we have the corruption of the people, how they were corrupted. The rest of the chapter, we have the day of Jehovah, day of the Lord. And all the way through the Old Testament, that day is spoken of as a day of terrible judgment, a day of darkness and blackness, and so on and so forth. But let's pick up with verse 6, and we're going to find verses 6 through 9, the, the corruption of the people. And so verse 6 says, Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because... Now, this is why God had forsaken them. Because they be replenished from the east, and... and are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves and the children of strangers. Now then, once again, the prophet laments the state of this nation. And the nature of their sin is outlined in these verses that we're about to study. Uh, notice, replenished from the east, that means that they got the, the uh, wealth of the east. You know, we talk about something modern and up-to-date. Being as old as the hills. In those days, they had the people from the east to come and buy out the government. <laughs> We've got them today, you know. Try to make inroads. And the people from the east, they came. And by the way, the, the people on the east of uh, Israel were the Ammonites and the Moabites, which were the uh, very illegitimate or ill-conceived children of Lot by his two daughters, you remember and uh, God placed a curse upon the Ammonites and the Moabites. And the Ammonites represent one thing. They represent, you might say, uh, human reasoning or trying to rationalize things. And the Moabites uh, uh, indicate worldliness. And so that's the two enemies. There are enemies of God's people today that try to rationalize everything. And the enemies of God's people today that try to make everything worldly and uh, fleshly enticing. And so we have the same kind of situation. When we talk about the corruption of the people of Israel, we've got the same thing today. And like the Philistines, these were also typical of the world in such a way as in the flesh as well, fleshly desires. And they please themselves, notice, in the children of strangers. They join hands with when it says they please themselves. They make alliances with. The Bible tells us not to make alliances. Uh, back in the Old Testament, Israel was not to make alliances with those idle and heathen nations round about them. And you know, when people today make alliances with the ungodly, you have to compromise. They say compromise is the uh, milk of uh, art of politics, so to speak. And people... and Political circles have to compromise. You know what a compromise is? That's two people agreeing on something that neither one of them like. And you know, that's bad, isn't it? I'd rather lose the battle and say, let him have it, and then when I come down with my convictions, win one once in a while, than to compromise all the time and nobody's satisfied. And so, but that's what it's all about. In verse 7 it says, Their land also is full of silver and gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. In other words, they think that their wealth is, is, is sufficient. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. Now, what did God say about the horses and chariots in the Old Testament? Well, we know horses are legitimate animals for certain uses. We know that the horse is a symbolical of, of war in the Old Testament. 
And yet to trust in our own military strength is the wrong thing. And God was saying to Israel, and he said before in the Old Testament, for them not to multiply horses in the sense that they would depend upon them for their strength, but they'd turn away from the strength of God. You see, you and I make all kinds of outward weapons to win the battles, and yet we do not trust in God for His strength. It's the same principle. You know, we can make all kinds of weapons to win. We do it in churches. We say, now, if we'll put this program in order, and we'll put this program in order, and we'll go out here and do this, and if we will, we, 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 well, then what? It'll all happen. Put it this way. If we'll preach the Word of God, He will do something. It won't be the we that'll do it. It'll be the He that does it. And He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. To show you more about horses, look in Isaiah 31, verse 1. And he's speaking to Israel again. Now, Egypt is a picture of the world, and it says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. In other words, woe to those that trust in the world for their help. That go to the world for their help. Just like this church, we've had problems lately. Brother Randy's dad had a few problems. Some of the others have a few problems. Where did we go? Out here to the world to try to get help? We went to God in prayer, didn't we? And where did the help come from? From on high. And you say, well, human beings were involved, but God is able. The king's heart, listen, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. See, he can, he can control the powers that be. And back in the Old Testament, you'll find it many times that he did that. In the New Testament, remember, Jesus was to be, Micah 5 verse 2 tells us that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, right? Micah 5 2, the prophecy. And yet, when Mary was with child, there went out a decree. It came to pass that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And that taxing was first made when Serenus was governor of Syria. And all went be, to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph and Mary had to go from where they were to Bethlehem to be enrolled for their taxes. And it came to pass that while they were there, where in Bethlehem, where prophet Micah said that Jesus would be born, it came to pass that that's where baby Jesus was born, right? Now, who put it in the heart of that king at that very particular time, at that very uh, minute time in which Mary was with child and the very time of her deliverance would be that they would be have to be down there to be enrolled for the taxation? Who put it into his heart? You say, well, he wasn't a Christian. And these were mean guys and kings and rulers. But God is a the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. And he caused that to be that way, so Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, but you did. According to the saying of Micah the prophet. So you see, there's no accidents with God. God knows everything before it happens, and when it happens, you and I experience it, and it comes to pass in time. But God sees, you know, everything with, with God Almighty is one big now. Eternity is one big now. The future is one big now. The tribulation and the anguish and the, and the final outcome of all things is one big now. You and I have to experience it day by day. But God sees and knows all. He foreknew. The Bible says that 
when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son. The time was with you and I, but God knew when the time would be, and He sent Him forth. And He knew that before the world was. The Bible tells us in the book of First Peter chapter 1, verse 18, For as much, listen, for as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, listen now, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, listen, that your faith and hope might be in God. Look at that whole plan of redemption. The blood redemption through Christ as a lamb without blemish. God foreknew before the foundation of the world. He was manifested. He came into the world. And then He did this that you and I, that our faith and hope might be in God. Can you imagine all of that coupled in three or four verses? You know how long it would have taken some writers to... It taken a whole volume or several volumes to really deal with that thought fully. God says, I'm going, to compromise. I'm going to condense it into about four verses. It's going to be so full of meaning that it would take an eternity to unwrap. See, that's the Word of God for you. But anyway, back to this. Okay, their land is also full of silver and gold. Neither is there any end of their treasure. Their land is also full of horses. We didn't read that verse. I was going to read you that verse, and I got sidetracked, didn't I? Okay, Isaiah 31, verse 1. You have that? Do you still have it? I got to preaching along the way. Isaiah 31, verse 1. It says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses. And that doesn't mean stay on them because you can't, you know, you might fall off. It means that they trust in horses. Their stay, their, their, their desire is to depend, to depend upon horses. And stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many. They stay on them. They trust in them because they're many. Because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not. Here's, here was what God was talking about. They look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. He was saying that they depend upon their military power. Which in those days had to be horses and chariots. It would be just like our country saying, We have a great army and we have all the cannons and all the guns and all the... The missiles and everything, and we're going to trust in those and never trust in God. Now, I know technology is great, but on the other hand, God is able to just turn that stuff around and it can blow up in your face, too. You know, God can do that. There's been a lot of people with a lot of power that the Bible says the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happen to them all. So it's in the hands of God, isn't it? You know, sometimes we just get so powerful in our own mind and our own wisdom that we think nothing can move us or that uh, nothing can defeat us. Look over there, Israel. What was 1965? The Six-Day War. Took them six days to do what our country... I mean, you know what? This mighty nation, we, we just play at it, you know. We spent how many years in Vietnam? Because we was over there just walking around, can't shoot anybody. Be sure you don't put a bullet in your gun and all this kind of stuff. Now, I'm exaggerating. You know I am. But, I mean, we were not there to win the war, were we? Uh, the, and so, all the pros and cons. And I, uh, you, 
you know, it takes a multitude of uh, thought to enter into that and ramifications, but we don't have time. But you can see what I'm talking about. They went in to fight a war and to win it, and they did in six days. And if you don't go in with a purpose of winning, you're not going to win anything. And so, uh, let's get back to this. So, we're not to trust in our military might and our power. Let's look down here at verse 8. We're still talking about the corruption of Israel. Uh, In verse 8, it says, in now Isaiah 2, when I say verse 8, I mean back to our text. Hold your place in Isaiah chapter 2 where we're studying. Their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. There comes a point when the prophet ceases to intercede because there's no more hope for them. Look at the rest of the verse. And the mean man boweth down, and the great man humbleth himself. Therefore, and what does he say? Forgive them not. Prophet Isaiah praying for God's people. And what does he say? Forgive them of their sins. Forgive them not. Because the judgment was determined. And there comes a point uh, when the prophet ceases to intercede because there's no hope of repentance or because the people have rejected the prophet's divine message and he knows the only thing left is judgment. I can't think of a sadder thing for a man of God to say than God do not forgive them. In other words, they've gone so far, they've rejected, they will not repent, there's nothing left, but God, I just have to turn them over to you for judgment. Remember, even Moses interceded for Israel when... When God says, I'm fed up with them, I'm going to judge this stiff-necked people. And, and Moses says, Lord, these are thy people that thou didst give and, they, and brought forth out of Egypt. You know, God says, Moses, your people have, have uh, committed idolatry. And, and Moses says, no, God, they're not mine. I don't claim them. They're your people. And, and he turns it back on to God and he, finds, he makes intercession for them. And God permits that intercession to be successful. But here the prophet says, therefore forgive them not. Isn't that sad? When you come to a place that there's nothing left but judgment, and that's the situation here. Now then, verses 10 through 22 shows us the day of Jehovah. And this speaks of a future day that is yet to come, but the Bible enters into the thought of the day of Jehovah, the day of the Lord, as a great and terrible day. You study the book of Joel, the book of Zephaniah, other passages in Isaiah, and you'll find that it's saturated with... uh, Joel especially says, says the day of Jehovah, the day of the Lord, is a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of sorrow, a day of of all these uh, bad things happening. And the day of the Lord, you know when it will really begin? When the Lord takes His own out of this world, and we mentioned it, I think, earlier Sunday morning probably in that message in Thessalonians, when He takes His own out of this world, that's the beginning of a seven-year great tribulation period that will culminate with Christ coming in power and great glory in the book of Revelation chapter 19. And the day of the Lord is that terrible day of judgment. And it begins when the saints are taken out. And then it continues... It's not just one day. It's a period of time. The day, the day of the Lord is not just one day. It's a period of time in which judgment will come. So, what are we to, it says, Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty. Enter into the rock. 
Revelation chapter 6. I want you to listen to this. In verse 15. Well, let's begin reading with verse uh, 12 and get the whole context down through 17. In verse 12. Revelation 6 verse 12. says, I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. By the way, before I read that, verse 13, notice what it says, The stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. Stars falling from heaven. Have you been on the news, you know, when they talk about any one star or anything falling and hitting something and what catastrophe it caused? When they start shedding like figs, they're untimely figs. I'm not talking about one star falling or one meter falling. I'm talking about just a shower, a hailing of these things. And it says on down in verse... uh, 14, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every freeman, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said unto the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Back to the verse we quoted. Isaiah 2 verse 10. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when the great day of his wrath comes. And what's going to happen? Verse 11. Isaiah 2 11. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. You know, man walks around filled with pride. I've seen some guys down here. Every once in a while, there's one in particular. He walked down, won't even speak to you, you know. You know, fella, we're all human beings. Put it behind you. Get that chip off your shoulder. Quit worrying about it. Let's just at least speak to one another. I'd like to be a little more relationship than that, but at least we can be civil, can't we? I've never found anyone that I couldn't at least be civil toward. I mean, you know, I may differ as wide as day is from night, but still I can speak to him. But there's guys that won't even speak to you. They get that, they get that arrogance and that pride, and I mean, it's so high that, man, alive, you're nothing in their sight. You're just nothing. Well, you know, God says the lofty looks of man shall be humble. God's able to bring them down. You and I don't need to worry about it. And the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And it says, and the Lord, the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. If they think they're something, it says the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Now, verse 12. For the day of the Lord of hosts, this is the day of reckoning, shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty. You know, God hates the, the sin of pride. He hates for men, for people, for men, women, boys, and girls to think so much of themselves that they can't turn to God. God hates the sin of pride. The Bible says, Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Some of you have heard me tell about the young preacher. You know, there's in a fellowship meeting and preachers have preached and 
Boy, he thought, I'm going to show all those preachers up. And he had him an outline, the sermon all fixed up. I mean, he was ready for bear. And he come a prancing up to the pulpit when it was his turn. He walked up there just like he was going. He started out, wham, wham, wham. And all of a sudden, you know, the Lord wasn't in it. And it began to cool off and cow down. And finally, he knew he wasn't making a very good success of things. And got through this sermon. He walked down. And the elder laid the other end of the church when he's going out says young man says if you would have gone up there like you came down you would have came down like you went up if he had gone up with a little humility he might have come down he might have come down with a pride of victory on his face and, and success but you see your attitude sometimes our attitude is what kills us and uh, the thing about it is, we need to trust in God. The lofty looks of a man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Look at this. It says, And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan. I'm going to read these several verses down to verse 16, and then come back and talk about it. And, uh, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarsus, and upon all the pleasant pictures. Let's stop there for a moment. First notice in verse 13, it starts out with the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan. These are indicative of individuals. Cedars and oaks. And then uh, the mountains, in verse 14, high mountains and the hills are indicative of governments. Mountains and hills. And then uh, the high tower and fence wall is indicative of military might. The tower and the wall represent military might. Remember, God speaks of the tower of protection and, and might. And then the ships and beautiful slopes Speak of commerce. And God is able to take care of the individuals and of governments and of military powers and of all commerce. And bring it all down when He gets ready. And you'll find that these are things that you'll find in the book of Revelation that God brings judgment upon during the great tribulation at the end of it. Remember, Babylon the Great is spoken of with all their uh, individual power, the, the ones that are in rule and power. And the governments, how high the governments will be and how they'll be brought down. And the military might will be brought down and the commercial might and power will be brought down. So all that's going to happen. Now look in verse 17. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down. And the haughtiness of men shall be made low. And the Lord alone, again it says the Lord alone, shall be exalted in that day. Look in verse 18. And the idols he shall utterly abolish. Idols. There's nothing in which they were trusting, even the false gods of Canaan, that could interfere with the coming destruction. The idols were utterly useless when it comes to God. Remember those that had idols in the Old Testament? Remember how some of them would fall on their face and break all apart? Remember those in Elijah's day that were the idol worshippers? prophets of Baal and they came 
to their sacrifice and boy they prayed and they cut themselves and they prayed aloud from morning till noon. No, Elijah just let them go through all they was going through. Boy, they, they really had a lengthy ceremony, didn't they? I mean, it took nearly all day. Finally, when they got through, well, Elijah, he repaired the altar, fixed everything. A little, little bit of uh, humor before he gets to that. Old Elijah said while they was doing all this stuff, you know, and cutting themselves, self-inflicted wounds, there's no amount, amount of pain you can put upon your body that will bring you any closer to God. The Bible says, though you give your body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth nothing. Anyway, Elijah says, maybe he's on a journey. Or maybe he's hard of hearing. Maybe he can't hear you. You know? Say, maybe he's sleeping, taking a nap. And they said several other things. I, I get amused every time I think of old Elijah approaching these prophets of Baal and just telling them, you know, maybe this has happened to, to, to your God. And finally, when he gets through, when they get through, well, he... Builds that altar, he fixes that altar, he lays the sacrifice on there and the wood under it, and he drenches it in time of drought. He takes all the water available and he pours it on that sacrifice to wet it down so fire would not touch it. And then he pours water on the wood and on the altar, and then he digs a trench around about it and he fills that full of water. And he prays about 30 seconds and he says, God, if I'm your servant and if you're God of Israel... He says, let fire come down from heaven. God sends a fire down from heaven. And I mean, it consumed the sacrifice. When it consumed the sacrifice, that was to indicate God accepted it. And it consumed the not just the sacrifice, but the altar itself and the wood and licked up the water in the trench. He was giving Elijah really a fourfold proof that he was God. And so the thing about it is, idols are nothing. And the idols he shall utterly abolish. God will bring judgment directly upon idol worship. Bring that on down to you and I. What are we worshiping today? Is our worship truly of the Lord or do we have idol worship in our lives? Do we idolize this or that or the other? Do we idolize our bank account? Do we idolize our our position? Do we idolize our uh, possessions? Do we idolize our influence? Do we idolize our our uh, character and things like that? There's, or do you idolize some one of your family? We're to love all of our family. We're to take care of what we have. There, there's a way to handle all these things that we've mentioned, but not to idolize them. See, you don't have anything but what God has given you. What hast thou that thou hast not received? We don't have anything that God hasn't given us. Brother Wendell came down yesterday and I said, Wendell, you know, I was talking about the tools and stuff I had in my shop. I said, Wendell, I don't know why the Lord has given me all these good tools to work with. It's all a gift of God, isn't it? And the thing about it is, it's just a blessing when God supplies your needs and takes care of you. And if you go out and try to get everything... You're going to be struggling and driving for it. But if you if you will do what you're supposed to do and let God bless you and realize that everything that you have is a blessing from God. There's nothing we have that we that uh, if it hadn't been for God. You know, back he warned Israel of old. Remember back in the book of Deuteronomy and, and Exodus also, but especially in Deuteronomy, he tells them, 
He says, lest you forget that it's the Lord thy God that giveth thee wealth. And, and you begin to say, my own hands and my own ingenuity, my own labor has gotten me this wealth. And do not realize that God gives you the strength to get this wealth. That is God that giveth thee the strength. He gives you the ability. Did you know you may be prospering today and all the Lord would have to do is permit sickness to come or permit some accident to come that you'd be maimed or permit something to come into your life of a tragic nature because of your pride and then it would all be downhill. I'm thankful to God that I'm still here. Lord willing, if I reach March the 2nd, which is this Sunday, I'll be 70 years old. And I thank the Lord for every day and every year, and I hope I can live a few more. But the thing about it is, God is the one that gives us life. And we better realize where it comes from. Let's look at verse 19. It says, And they shall go into the holes of the isles. Uh, he shall abolish, verse 18, And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty when He ariseth to shake terribly the earth. This is a picture of an earthquake. It's a figurative term for severe and universal judgment. In the book of Hebrews, it says that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. The things that can be shaken will be removed. In verse 20, it says, In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to the rodents and to the cave dwellers. Can you imagine all the silver and gold, his idols of silver and his idols of gold. I mean, silver and gold is pretty valuable uh, metals, aren't they? It's pretty valuable. In fact, that's usually the thing that goes on the market is the highest of, of value. But he says they'll take those and cast them to the moles and the bats because they will be worthless and because God's judgment is there. Look at verse 21. To go into the cliffs of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty. When He arises to shake terribly the earth. There you have it again. Now I want to give you this last verse here and we'll close. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. For wherein is he to be accounted of? Cease ye from man. What does that mean? Stop depending on man. Stop depending upon man. Paul says, you're bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. In other words, just don't serve men to depend upon them for everything. Serve God and then the men that you're around will be your supporters. And they'll care for you. And you'll have some uh, help laborers, fellow laborers and workers. But cease ye from man as if man has all the answers. Human ingenuity. We think sometimes because we figured out something that Definitely it's got to work. We may have figured out the best scheme in the world. I was kind of amazed today hearing the news uh, on Wall Street, you know. Greenspan, he says, everything looks good in the country. Everything's prospering. And what did he say? But, he says, it seems to be rather uh, kind of 
cosmetic. It's kind of on the outside and really the nation's not in quite as good a shape as we think it might be and maybe we're going to have to make some adjustment. Well, what's he going to do? Raise the interest rates and then what's going to happen? Notice the first thing that happened, the Dow Jones lost about 100 points, just like that. And then it recovered a little bit. But you see how how the the things of man, man thinks he's got it figured out, hasn't he? But sometimes we just really don't have it figured out. See she from man. Now look at this, and we'll close in just a moment. Whose breath is in his nostrils. He's only a breath away from death. One breath away from death. And then, that's exactly the reason we should cease from man. For wherein is he to be accounted of? How's he going to be accounted of? Well, I hope you've gotten something out of this. We'll... Pick up with the third chapter in our next lesson, which will be Sunday evening. And then next Wednesday evening uh, at 7 o'clock, how many know what it is? Questions and answers.